Okay, welcome to episode 78 of Running Matters Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Paul Hadfield. Missing in action again today is Matt, the Wolfman North, who's tearing up the local lawn bowl circuit as we speak. Uh, quickly, I'd like to thank our podcast partners, Goo Energy, Ranulla, Sydney Brewery, Fractal Performance Headwear, T8 Run, Precision Hydration, Gaimi Allied Health and Basecamp Altitude. Now, our special guest for today is Jared Clifford. Welcome to the show, Jared. Hey, and yeah, thanks for having me and, and g'day listeners. Well, thanks for coming on. It's uh, yeah, a pleasure to have you. Um, so just to, just to let the listeners know, Jared is a T12 slash 13 classification vision impaired Paralympian. So it's a, it's a real pleasure to have someone who has been to the Paralympics on the show. This is the first for us. Um, Jared, you're originally from Diamond Valley, Victoria, but fairly recently moved to Canberra. Uh, how good was it to avoid the Victorian lockdown, mate? Yeah, um, it was. I was very lucky. I uh, had the opportunity to kind of get out of Victoria during uh, stage four, probably week four of stage four, so August 20th. Um, so that was still early days, so I actually missed a lot of it, but... It was a really weird feeling because when I left, we were preparing, uh, or I was preparing that potentially I could be away for a year without being able to come home. Um, just because Victoria, it was like, hard to predict where it was going um, and also hard to predict where the rest of the country was going. Um, it's all come well and good now. So um, I am back home for a couple of weeks um, over Christmas. So, which is, you know, that's really special. Um, but yeah, no, it was good. Did the quarantine. Two weeks in quarantine. Interesting on the treadmill, just smashing out the Ks on that. I, th I think I um, would have happily burnt the treadmill at the end of those two weeks. But, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, no, we got, out, we got out and, um, you know, we're just hopefully Tokyo goes ahead. And, and I think that was why we made the move because um, training in Victoria got quite difficult for me, especially with um, my, my training partner or my guide, Tim. Um, living outside of the radiuses and um, all that stuff. And you could, you know, we probably could have got exemptions, but um, yeah, I know it's quite, quite complicated. So yeah, yeah, it was good to get out. And, and, and so a, a group of you guys moved out together into Canberra or was it just the, the two of you? How did that work? Yeah. So Tim and I, uh, obviously, yeah, we're both from Diamond Valley. So yeah, we moved up to Canberra and then one of our training partners that's, been based in Canberra for a while, uh, moved in with us. So we got an apartment. His name's Dale Kenzie. So he's a world para-athletics champion from 2017 in the wow. 1500, uh, the T38, which is cerebral palsy. So it's a pretty uh, pretty good person to be staying with because he's um, one of the best of the best. So Fantastic, mate. Sounds like a fast, fast group. Um, <laughs> so uh, I believe at uh, three years of age, you were diagnosed with juvenile macular degeneration. Um, can you quickly explain to the listeners, uh, I guess, what your field of vision looks like at this point? Yeah. So my visual impairment is, yeah, juvenile macular degeneration, which means it is, well, firstly, it's like genetic. So um, my dad has it, my nana has it, and, um, but to varying degrees, I guess. Um, and it's also a condition that can, that can get worse over time. Um, so I was diagnosed when I was three, but yeah, I've had it forever. Um, 
And we've also got long sidedness, so I've worn glasses as well. Um, oh, actually, yeah, I'm wearing glasses at the moment that uh, I've been taped up on either side. It's just they've been absolutely smashed to pieces, and I'm waiting on new a new one. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I, uh, basically my my vision hasn't always been the same. So it has gotten worse. Probably got worse throughout the middle of primary school a little bit, um, and it got worse in my central vision. And yeah, juvenile macular degeneration affects your central vision. So um, definition. Um, it's quite hard for me to see in that central so facial features um, but my peripheral vision is okay um, so when I'm running in a race I can see the person in front of me like I can see them run in front of me as in who they are might be difficult if that makes sense mm-hmm. um, it's actually sometimes I find it difficult to explain I guess because it's like I'm yeah being diagnosed three having it forever even though it has gotten a little bit worse since it's like it's it's pretty much all that i know of course so um for me it's actually it feels pretty normal um yeah i i guess one of the things that i've noticed um a lot more and i guess since primary school uh would be that if something is stood still directly in front of me i might as soon as it starts to move though then i'll realize um so yeah i notice like um you know, I'll walk up to a group of people and I might not realise some of the people that are there because it's like, if they're standing still, I don't know. They're just like, yeah, it's hard to explain. So if sometimes it feels like I can see everything, mm. but then once, once like something will move in the centre, I'll realise, oh, you know, I actually couldn't see that. Yeah. And I only realised I couldn't see it until it, when it moved. Yeah, wow. Well. Yeah, yeah, I'm not... Yeah. No, that's good. That's 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 perfect explanation. Thank you. Um, I, I guess just just briefly touching on on childhood sort of stuff. I believe you were into ball sports of every kind. Um, mm. what what was it like for you to play AFL footy, for example? Like, how how did that work for you at the time? Yeah, I was always a huge sports fan. Uh, I was going to say I grew up in a golden era for Australian sport, but I, I think every era pretty much is pretty golden. Um, but for me, you know, I grew up around the Socceroos made the World Cup uh, for the first time in, in ages. Uh, and there was, you know, the Ashes, you know, with uh, Shane Warner and Glenn Grar and, and all those people. And um, and then there was the Commonwealth Games, which were held in Melbourne uh, in 2006. So I had all this incredible sports going on around me only problem is i'm a carlton uh carlton fan in the afl and uh they weren't playing super good at the time but uh um we'll move on from that but yeah i always loved sport um footy was probably one that i drifted to a bit later i it was my favorite sport but i think as we all know it's a bit more full-on um a bit more contact i guess a bit more going on um took me a while to find my groove but I think maybe my second season, and this is like I'm talking under 11s, under 12s, so it's not too advanced. Uh, and I'm playing, I, I played in the centre predominantly in the end, but just because I found that like I would struggle to know exactly where the ball had been kicked unless I was right in the middle at the start. Um, and that's basically how I got most of my possessions. It would have to be at the, right at the beginning of the contest or I might struggle to get the ball. Um, this is where yeah, some of the what, early leg speed came from, just following that ball. 
and I, I had to I had to run pretty desperately uh, because if I if I I guess um, slacked off a bit I might look like an absolute idiot just standing in the middle of the field looking around <laughs> trying to find the ball. But one of one of the good things of junior footy is the pack does follow the ball. So yeah, yeah. spot on. Like flies um, <laughs> around the <laughs> Yeah. And, and so, look, I guess one of the things middle distance runners need is tenacity. So do you think these early experiences provided that determination or do you think it was in your DNA already? Yeah, I think it provides it. Like, I think that stuff probably comes with experiences um, because I guess there's a few things to take out of like those early years. And one of them would be, yeah, like, not being wrapped up in cotton wool, just being thrown into the midst of basically uh, what any other person would do. And also not even that being a big deal. Like it's, it was just like, well, yeah, just do it. You know, just go play footy, like just do it. Um, so me, me doing that was like helping me realize that well, there's, you know, no, nothing really has to stop you too much. But then also, no one treating it like it was an incredible feat of me doing this um, made me think, well, no, that, then me doing something like this is normal. So going outside the comfort zone is normal. Um, yeah, it didn't even feel like going out of the comfort zone, I guess, because it was like, I'm just playing footy. Yeah, yeah, so of course. I, I think like being thrown into, thrown into things just like that any other kid was doing, and because every other kid thinks it's normal it's like well why wouldn't I think it's normal so it's like kind of that I think made me now when I'm standing on a stunt running against able-bodied athletes go yeah all right maybe how I'm seeing how I see this race in front of me is different to the person next to me mm. but you know I, I'm also pretty bloody fit so why can't I beat them yeah so I think that's where it does come from yeah Oh mate, that's uh, that's that's perfect, and, and and one thing you can see in your face when you're running is tenacity. That's for sure. <laughs> mate, you've uh, you you just recently had a crack at your own fifteen hundred meter world record just over the weekend. So, uh, mate, how how did the attempt go? Can you can you let us let us in? Yeah, I'm uh, I'm in pretty probably career best shape, even quicker than um or fitter than last year, and um that was pretty good last year. So. Um, I actually thought, yeah, I'd, my world record's three forty-five point one eight. I think I could be in, you know, in a really, really good race, good conditions, perfect scenario in like low three forty shape. Um, so I'm waiting for the time to come, but it didn't quite come on the weekend. Uh, was checking the weather all week, and it wasn't looking. You know, it was like sunny on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Thursday and Friday and then uh, the race on Saturday was um, I woke up and yeah it was raining and apparently the wind speed was like 30 to 40 k's an hour uh, and um, and it wasn't yeah I, I still actually got that and had a crack um, I went out at the same pace I was like well mate, what's the point of not having a crack so I went out at the same pace and I was holding it through 800 metres and I think that between 800 and 1200, I probably lost two seconds. So that's probably where I lost it. And there was a huge, like, huge headwind, which does mean you get a pretty solid tailwind as well. But the headwind just probably saps some energy out of me a bit. Mm. Um, 
and I still managed to come home in 347.1, which is actually in my top 10 fastest times. So it was probably one of the better runs. And I ran it like, so, uh, not so, there was a guy three seconds behind me, but I was out in front by myself the whole way. Um, yeah. So taking the wind the whole time. Not, yeah. not, not able to tuck in behind. Yeah, basically. Okay. Yeah, and that's definitely, especially if you're in a time trial kind of environment or your kind of, your goals are time-based. If you can get a sit, um, even if it's not windy, like wind, the wind just makes it even more necessary. But even if it's still conditions, a sit is like uh, something that you would be wanting to get. Um, so yeah, hopefully I'm, I've got some big races planned uh, probably next year now, uh, Jan, Feb, March. And um, yeah, I think it's, it's, you know, barring any misfortune with injuries or anything like that, um, yeah, I should be able to get the world record uh, again. I think it's been nearly three years, so it's about time, mate. That's uh, that's very exciting. I love the confidence too. It's fantastic, <laughs> fantastic. Um, and I, I believe you just come down from a, a stint at Altitude in Perisher, um, and, and under Coach Philo Saunders, who has a tremendous amount of research and experience in that in that field, I guess. So. How does the Altitude Camp work for you? How long do you spend up there? Yeah, so Philo, yeah, Philo's um, one of the smarter guys you'll ever meet. Um, he's, yeah, especially when it comes to altitude and, and heat training as well. But yeah, altitude delete. So he, I believe his uh, best practice kind of recommendation would be four weeks at altitude and if possible, between 1,800 and 2,200 metres. Um, so parishes like bang on 1,800 metres, but you can run all the way to the top, mm. um, which is 22. Um, and then when we go to America, we go to Flagstaff, which is like 2,100, and you can run up to like 2,700, I think. So, yeah, we do like to – and then also he likes to spend at least two camps, maybe even three a year. Um and he also believes that altitude gains can accumulate over a career. Mm. So the more camps you do, maybe when I'm 28, it'll actually help me too, not just short-term gains. So we went to Parisha for probably a bit under that four weeks, but it was still, I think it was three weeks. Um, and yeah, he's a big believer. Like there's a lot of talk and I'm not personally, I'm not very uh, scientifically based with my knowledge, it's mainly just what comes from filler. But I think there was like this debate between the whole train high, live high, or um, live high, train low, like those kind of different philosophies. And Philo is a big believer in the live high and train high. Yep. Um, but also every now and then we will go down to about a thousand meters to do a track session. Um, so yeah, it's a bit of everything, but it's definitely tough up there. And I think, you know, one of his big beliefs too with an altitude training camp is that you, you're going to get altitude gains, but you're also going to get like gains from the faster training camp where you're kind of living and breathing training. There's no distractions. Um, the group's together. Everyone's there to train hard. So you're going to get a gain there. Um, and then also because there is less air, you're, you're going to, it's obviously making running a lot harder. So you're going to get, um, I, I honestly, this is totally anecdotal, but I actually find that when I get off the mountain, I'm 
I feel tougher. Like, yeah. I don't know if it's in my, in just in my mind. You know, like, you've just been running up mountains, running to the top of Australia, doing some sessions that make you realise that the sessions you do at sea level aren't as bad. Um, like, they don't hurt as bad. Like, it does hurt a lot more. The sessions up there feeling, like, way stronger physically, but just mentally too. So, I think there's a lot to gain from those camps. But um, I think, yeah, just any training camp environment, is going to foster some good results, but particularly that altitude. Yeah, mate, for sure. I think the group effect really comes into it there. Um, just on the, uh, I guess, the difficulty of training up at that height, what, what sort of time changes do you see between, let's say, a 1K time trial at sea level compared to a 1K time trial at altitude? Yeah, I, I reckon for a 1K... It's definitely hard, um, but there actually would be a, a line, and I don't know the line, but there would be a line where it's actually quicker at altitude you know, just because of the thin air. I don't know if the 800 would be, but the Australian record until recently was held by Ralph DeBell yeah. at the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City, which was at altitude. Um, but, yeah, no, over, I think over 1,500 and, and, and above, especially like as you get to 3K and 5K, um, it gets... Uh, I wouldn't know the exact time jump, but it's significant. So when we do sessions, uh, if we're doing six by a K, which we might do off one minute in uh, Canberra or Melbourne, we might do that with two minutes break um, and try and run similar times, um, but just get more recovery. Because Philo is also, I think, a believer in that when you're at altitude, it's more important to try and still hit similar times, but if obviously that it's going to be a lot harder, so then to take the recovery um, a bit longer rather than slowing down the reps and keeping the recovery the same. Yeah, makes sense. sense. So, yeah, makes sense. Yeah, and it seems to work. But now, if you were to do, if you were to race a, I've never raced up at altitude or done a all out time trial at altitude, and I really don't want to because it would hurt <laughs> a lot. It would be so much more painful, and okay. you'd probably run heaps lower. <laughs> uh, it's, it's tough for the ego too mate it's no good <laughs> oh yeah no, 100% <laughs> mate can we um we, we'll shoot back in time a little bit so uh I believe you were part of a, a Paralympic talent search as a young teenager H- how did that process work did they, they approach you did you approach them what happened yeah uh 20 20- 12 it was and I think it was just before the London Paralympic Games so I'd been running a little bit through little athletics um, stuff like that and mum I guess I think mum would have approached them um, and she got in contact with Tim Matthews who's um, you know a big name in, in Paralympic sport in Australia and yeah we did a beep test and I think it was a test that they, uh, yeah, basically told me that running would be the sport that I could, you know, potentially excel at. Um, and quite soon after that, uh, there was like a camp at the Australian Institute of Sport. And I'm still, I think, 12 or, or 13. And, uh, yeah, 10 track and field athletes that were young and up and coming got invited to this camp and basically were taught the ins and outs of being an elite athlete and, and that, you know, there was a good chance to, not a bad chance, that Rio was now on the horizon. 
um, which as a 12 or 13 year old that's always loved sport, um, it was such an eye opener to see um, all the other different athletes in all the other different sports with all these different completely diverse disabilities too. Um, for me, that camp was huge as an eye opener and um, definitely lit the fire for uh, you know my ambitions with Rio and, and Tokyo and stuff like that. Yeah, fantastic. What a great opportunity, mate. Um, now, you've got some just a, a wealth of stuff to talk about over the next, uh, I guess, seven to eight years from that point. So I won't dwell on anything too specifically over that time, but I just want to touch on a few, uh, I guess, stories and, and, and anecdotes from there. So we'll flash forward to 2015. Is it true that you qualified for your first Worlds as a 16-year-old based largely on a clerical error by the World Paralympic Association? <laughs> yeah, this is like... I reckon every year that passes on after this that I then reflect, I go, I, I still don't know how I was allowed to run. But I, um, I yeah, I ran 16.20 and 16.15, which is like in my first five Ks to try and make the qualifier for yeah, the World Power Champs. And uh, on the on the international website and on the Athletics Australia website, as a result, the qualifier was written as 16.27, I think, um, as a B qualifier. And the A qualifier was 15.45, which I didn't hit at, the, at that age. But, uh, yeah, so I ran these two B qualifiers. And, you know, the summer had been and the champs went until October. Um, and it got to winter where there's really track races in Australia. And uh, one of my mates looked up the qualifiers on the international website and they'd actually changed. And they'd gone to say that the B race, uh, the B qualifier was 15.45 now, which I hadn't hit. And, um, and they'd also changed, they originally combined my, there's three vision impaired categories. There's T11, which is totally blind, T12, which is uh, uh, vision, vision impaired, and T13, which is another level of vision impaired. So usually they do combine T12 and 13 because it's reasonably similar, and T11 by themselves. But originally they had T11 and 12 together with T13 by itself, and that's, I'm a T12, so the qualifiers were a little bit easier. And then they changed the event but without telling anyone. So the qualifiers changed, and I didn't, and I had like two weeks to either try and find a time, a uh, track to run a time, which in Australia you couldn't, or I would have to miss the boat. Yeah. And um, Athletics Australia must have put in a complaint. So I basically ran the, um, I'm running the world champs with a time 25 seconds slower than the actual official qualifier. <laughs> so, uh, and, I, and, and honestly, if they had gotten it right, from the start, I probably wouldn't have qualified. So I'm happy they got it wrong. Mate, what an amazing <laughs> error. Pretty lucky. <laughs> yeah, it definitely was one that went in my favour. Uh, I love yeah. it. I, I still came seventh, so I actually still beat a few people. Well, exactly. Obviously, uh, you continue to improve after that qualification period. So, mate, well done. Take that every day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah 100%. <laughs> Right, and, and, and what about uh, qualification the following year for the Rio Olympics? Um, 1500, I, I, I believe that you set a PB by about 13 or 14 seconds to qualify for, for, for Rio early on in 2016. Yeah, Athletics Australia had actually kind of brought me into the off end of 2015 
and had you know my payment at the time was four minutes thirty nine for fifteen hundred, and they were like, oh, there's not much. You know, we don't want you to like overdo it. We don't want you to overtrain and and uh, really stress yourself out trying to qualify for Rio because um, the qualifier was four four minutes zero seconds, um, and I wasn't looking like I was getting close. So they were like, oh, look, let's focus on Tokyo. Um, let's kind of move on from this. Um, you know, it's going to be a big jump for you to make and all this nonsense. Um, and then I think because of that meeting, I actually came out probably two weeks later and I was just so intent on proving them wrong. And, uh, yeah, I ran three minutes, 59 seconds in one go, which at that age, at that age, you definitely can make those jumps purely just, you know, by developing um, and stuff like that. But yeah, it was a uh, pretty funny when I gave him a call and said, yeah, I actually uh, just ran a 14 second PB, got the qualifier. <laughs> uh, mate, that's, that's an impressive uh, way to stick it to him. That's, uh, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and were you changing yeah, anything exactly. else? Off. <laughs> Sorry, Joe, were you, you changing anything else at that period of time? Like, I, I, I believe your running volume wasn't huge at that point in time. You were, Ticking away 50, 60 Ks a week. Yeah. How do you bring 13 or 14 seconds off your PB there? Um, yeah. I, honestly, training didn't. Oh, uh, yeah. I was training. The amount I was training never changed in that period. It was, yeah, like 50 Ks, I'm guessing, a week. Like it was two sessions, sometimes three sessions. We just added in like a Wednesday run. Um, so I wasn't really doing long runs. Um, yeah. Like Wednesday run was six Ks. And all the other stuff was just like track sessions, basically. So um, it was, yeah, it was probably the biggest thing that would have helped me do that was obviously one, I was 16. So I was probably growing up a bit, hitting puberty a bit more. Um, And then I think the other thing is that that 50 to 60 K a week kind of range, I actually held that through winter for probably one of the first times with, um, and that consistency definitely will help to um, create fast times. Mm. I've found that now running, you know, a lot more Ks. Um, consistency is like way more important. So I'm guessing that's why. Okay. Um, yeah, and because I ended up taking another three seconds off within the next month too. So oh, it was wow. like a 17 second jump overall. Um, and I still missed qualifier by 0.2. So uh, the A qualifier, so I got the B qualifier. The A qualifier would have definitely confirmed me on the team and would have saved a lot of stress. Yep. And I still missed that one by 0.2. So, buddy, 17 seconds, but not 17.2. <laughs> Mate, that's, a, a bit more. That's, a, that's a huge jump anyway. Um, can you describe the, yeah. feeling, describe the feeling when you found out that you were actually going to be a Paralympian, Jared? Yeah, that was like super cool because um, I'd missed that uh, a qualifier there was no day that I was going to be selected it was uh up to the discretion of the selector hadn't really heard much word so I didn't even really know when they were going oh, no we did we were given a day that they were meeting and then they didn't announce um it on that day but it kind of we thought they were going to and then I couldn't sleep for the next like four nights because I was just waiting for that and we were down at the track. I was actually on the Gold Coast because I'd been there to try and run a few times. And 
yeah, we're just running around the track doing doing a session and um and uh someone I think comes up to me and they're like, Oh, have you checked your emails? And I go, What? So I, I just rang mum and I go, Oh, quick check the email and see what's there and mum goes, No, nah, nothing's here I'm like, Oh shit And um I think five minutes later she called back and she told me and um the other boys that were with me on the Gold Coast, they were still running laps of the track and um and they saw me get off the phone and they came up to me and I didn't even have to say anything. I just had, probably had the biggest grin on my face ever. And they just like, I don't know, big group hug, jumping up and down, yelling real loud. And um, yeah, it was just like special. And it was special to then call my coach at the time, Maxi Bolchin. And then, um, it was special to come home to to Diamond Valley and and, uh, and tell everyone and, and then go to school. Like my school was super supportive. They like helped fundraise um, for mum and dad to go over and, and watch and my sister. And um, they had like this big day where everyone could dress up in green gold. And um, yeah, like that was really cool. So um, I think especially at that age, like going to a Paralympic Games, um, you know, I wasn't trying to win a medal or anything at that stage of my career. So it was a lot of it was about, you know, soaking up the experience and, um, learning from the experience you know it was kind of like that big moment in life where it feels like everything's come together um yeah and it is a dream because it's like you know it's pretty cliche to say but um and it was never specifically the dream until i was a bit older but the dream was to make it to the pinnacle of sport in whatever sport i chose and i think the Paralympic games is well and truly the pinnacle so it did feel like i'd achieved like a pretty big life dream Oh mate, that's uh, that's amazing. Great to hear the yeah the joy there too, um, mate. I've I've heard you describe the stadium in Rio, and it it, it sounded like you were a gladiator waiting to be let out into the Colosseum. Yeah. Uh, can you paint a picture for our listeners of just how big that was for you? Yeah, that uh, Rio was interesting because we'd watched the Olympic Games, and I think it's fair for me to say that ticket sales were not as big as other years like London or Sydney 2000 or stuff like that. Um, I'm not sure of the reasons, but we uh, yeah, got to the Paralympic Games and our tickets, which probably were cheaper, um, probably more affordable, um, were getting sold like left, right and centre. So we actually had some big crowds, which when I walked into the stadium for the first time to watch one of my uh, teammates, I was actually blown away by how many people were there because i I'd never you know athletics is one of those sports like you don't run in front of big crowds like if not once you know once every four years maybe the only time uh so it was weird like walking into the stadium the first night and and seeing you know people lining up to get chips from you know like to go watch athletics i was like <laughs> this is like I'm, this is you know it feels like i'm at the footy or so, you know, it was, I just was blown away by that. And then, you know, you walk out and, and the Brazilian crowd is just like real up and about. They just really get around it and they're like dancing and yelling and it's, it's seriously cool. And, uh, I, yeah, I knew, obviously, I'm happy I got a taste of that just in the crowd myself and just being able to kind of absorb it. Uh, because when on the night of my race, we were underneath the stadium, uh, one of the Brazilians... I think won a medal whilst we were under the stadium and uh, the stadium was just like rocking. Like it was, it felt like, like rocking literally, like that's how it felt. Um, 
and then we thought that was loud or I thought that was loud and then we ran out onto the track and honestly though if I'm if I'm if I'm honest yeah I was probably not focused as, as well as I should have been in that moment um, because I was just blown away by everything so um, you know the, uh, the Kenyan was next to me in the quorum he's one of the better Paralympic runners of all time and he's like he's just looking seriously cool and I'm just like I have no idea how to can, you know I don't know how to handle myself in this environment like I'm not sure where to stand or what to do or um you know the Algerian twin brothers that you know one of them would eventually win the race um they're like jumping around and like I'm trying not to get in their way because they're like the big dogs and it was just that was the first bit and then like walking out into the stadium no one really explains to you like where in the sport I didn't really know where in the stadium we were going to pop out on the track and then also no one really says oh, what you do. Like I just figured, you know, we'd come out near the 1500 start and we'd just walk up the line. And uh, we got, I think we got let out with the, the 200 meter start line, which is at the end of the straight. And all of a sudden all my competitors would walk out and I thought we were just going to get walked out. And they just like sprint off and they do a warm up stride. And I was like, it's overwhelming because I've never been in the center of such noise. And then there's lights flashing all the colors are like completely exaggerated because of the lighting. And it's like, this is, it's just so overwhelming. And you, and I kind of I run down that, that straight and I get to the start line and everyone's already kind of ready. And then they, they the camera comes right in your face as they introduce you. And there was two Brazilians in our race. And each time the Brazilian got called out their name and, and appeared on the screen, the noise that the crowd made was, like I've been to Carlton Collingwood games and, and I've never, I've, I've never heard a noise like this being in the center of it. It was like frighteningly loud. Um, and get, it literally give, like gave me goosebumps on the start line. And uh, there was an American guy next to me and I said to him, I was like, Oh, like, this is so cool. And like, this guy's probably been there before <laughs> knows exactly what's going on, really focused on his race. So he just completely ignored me. Um, and, it, and, uh, yeah, it was just like, I've never been that nervous in my life. It was just the most surreal experience. And then the gun goes and then before you know it, it's over. Like it was just like a blur. Like it's, uh, yeah, it's crazy how subconscious a lot of it ends up feeling. Um, in that environment you just yeah it's i wonder like if tokyo obviously goes ahead and there's crowds and stuff i think i'm going to be heaps better handling it because of that experience Hmm. um i think you know especially as young athletes some people go oh well if you know the athlete's not going to win a medal is there much worth in going to the games um it's not a very like i've just heard that somewhere Um, and i and if i was ever asked that question i'd be like well yeah i think if i do well in Tokyo if I win a medal or a gold medal, a lot of that will come down to me having gone to Rio because obviously in our sport, you get one chance every four years to execute uh, and you have to execute in the smallest window and that you don't even choose when that window is. And if you don't execute, you've got to wait four years. So that it's high pressure environment. And I think if I had all of that pressure about winning and then I was also running in front of tens of thousands of people for the first time. Those two things combined would be seriously overwhelming. Which now I know what that experience is going to be like, so I can prepare myself. 
And um, now I also know how to handle that pressure, I think. So yeah. definitely Rio will go a long way you know, making sure I'm, I'm prepared for Tokyo. So but that experience was hectic. And then you just can't get that experience any other way. So I, I agree. Send some young kids to the Olympics for sure. Mate, um, uh, yeah. just, just practically speaking, that noise in the crowd must make racing difficult for you. I imagine hearing is a big part of your sort of tactical game there. Yeah, hearing is like one of my go-tos. Just, no, I don't really have to think about it. it. Just, I guess it's something I just rely on. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm usually in a race, 1500 meters and being able to hear the people around me, I guess, helps with the spatial awareness, um, when I can't see if they're right next to me or something. Um, so yeah, I definitely, I definitely rely on that and I rely on it, um, in longer races, obviously to hear the bell for a lap to go or, um, stuff like that. But I remember walking out into the stadium and one of the things I thought yeah, shit, this is going to be like heaps different to my normal running environment. Like I'm not going to be able to rely on some of the things that I usually rely on. So yeah, that was like something that for Tokyo, I'm now prepared to not like not have. Um, but yeah, I use guide runners um, now in the 5,000 meters. And it's going to be interesting if there is a big crowd in Tokyo. I think when the person's right next to you, you can still hear them. Um, if they're like, emphasizing their words and speaking clearly um i'm sure that i'd still be able to hear them but it'll still be interesting to see because running at world champs in dubai when the crowd's quite low um is very easy to hear them and their, their main job is communication so in that environment where it's super loud um it's still a bit of an unknown to be honest just have to get tim to work on his lungs mate yeah exactly he's just got to train them up and and keep hollering real loud wait <laughs> um can we flash forward to to 2018 so uh you're the first australian para athlete to win an australian junior title so the under 20s 1500 meters um can you tell us a little bit about that and also about your last ditch effort to qualify for the world uh world juniors that year yeah this is um Definitely one of the crazier weekends um, of, of my career. So uh, I kind of went in. So World Juniors was on my radar, but not too seriously. Like I'd gotten like a bronze medal at Australian Juniors before as an under 18. Um, so I was up there with the best in a World Juniors year. Um, it gets even more competitive. Um, people get a little bit more serious. They really go for it. Um, so the qualifier for the 1500 was 348.00 and I'd run 348.7 leading into the championships and three other guys had actually run under the qualifier during the period. Um, so, and there's two spots. Um, and the way it works is if you win the national title and you've got a qualifier, you're an automatic selection. And then the second spot would be discretionary. And if uh, the person that wins the national title doesn't have the qualifier, then the two spots are up to the selector's discretion. So basically I got to the final um, and World Juniors wasn't really on my radar. Winning a medal was like, would have been one of my better races. Like it would, I would have been stoked with a medal. And um, I was coming last, I think with 600 meters to go. I just sat at the back, wasn't feeling that great. And then like the gaps just opened up right in front of me and started feeling good. And um, 
slowly moved up and with about 80 metres to go, I found myself in front, um, which is super, super scary because it's winning a race um, is nearly my own head to it. Um, I know I was probably fit enough to win a state title for years and I couldn't do it. Like, I'd get to the front and then uh, in the last 20 metres, I wouldn't be able to hold on for some reason because actually that line first, it's like a mental barrier um, sometimes. So, yeah, I, I got to the front with 50 to go and I was like freaking out. <laughs> I didn't know how I'd done it or um, if I was going to hold on. And I was like a bit, everything was kind of happening. So I wasn't quite sure where the finish line was. And um, But, yeah, I got, got there and I won. But I won in 3.49. So I was a national champion. Um, which I never thought I would be in able-bodied racing. And, uh, but, I, yeah, I didn't have the qualifier, so I, I couldn't have been selected on the team. Um, but, honestly, at that moment, I was like, a national title is as good as I thought it was ever going to get. Like, this is beyond what I expected. Uh, and I, had, we, uh, I went to an Ed Sheeran concert that night, which was books for ages. And, um, you know, I was pretty stoked, so I was... Um, yeah, pretty up and about, pretty pumped. Had a pretty late night and um, got a message, I think, during the night that there was a spot in this, like, track classic elite 1,500 metres the next day, which still was in the qualifying period. Um, I was on the last day. So it was going to be my third race in three days. And the Olympic champion, Matt Centrowitz, was on the start line. Um, next to me, actually, he was, like, lane one, I was lane two. And uh, I remember him going to me on the start line and he's like, oh, do you want to take the lead or are we going to jostle for this? Like, <laughs> in my head, I'm like, mate, you're the Olympic champion. <laughs> like, you can do whatever you want. <laughs> um, I'm like going to be barely hanging on to this pack. Um, so, yeah, that was a pretty cool moment. But uh, I ended up running 345.1, which was like, which is still my PB, which is three seconds quicker than the world record uh, three um, at the time and three, pretty much three seconds quicker than the qualifier. So, um, yeah, I'm probably one of the first or only people ever to win the national title before they get the qualifier. Usually when, when someone has a qualifier, they'll then win the national title to get the automatic spot. So it was probably the weirdest way someone secured their automatic selection to a world juniors, um, but it was pretty exciting. And, and um, I must have been pretty darn ready to run that night because I've been fitter since that day and I've been more fresh and I still haven't beaten the time. So, uh, um, it was a good race. It, it, it actually brings me to my first uh, listener question of the afternoon. This has come in, funnily enough, from Ed Sheeran. Uh, so, <laughs> do, do you think the main reason you qualified for World Juniors and broke the world record was trying to outrun the middle of the road melodies still in your head from my concert the night before? Yeah, <laughs> I think uh, I think the concert might have had something to do with it. Yeah, <laughs> mate, you just have to recreate that situation next time you want to break the world record. I know. Someone bring a concert to Australia. <laughs> mate we'll get there one day we'll get there one day yeah, hopefully, hopefully. Yeah. mate we'll, uh, we'll, we'll flash forward again to 2019 so uh, world championships again is it true that someone broke into your car and stole your spikes and goggles in the lead up to the 2019 worlds yeah 
So uh, that was like another hectic story, really. We were in, uh, we'd been to Flagstaff for, yeah, a month. And then we were in Spain kind of for seven days because we wanted to come down to sea level uh, before going to the World Championships. And uh, Spain was also probably the warmest place, which the World Champs were in Dubai. So I wanted to do a bit more heat acclimation as well. And, um, and it was also in between America and Dubai. So it was the halfway point. So that's why we we're in Spain and we we're in Barcelona and it was Philo's birthday. So we all had all our nice gear and our running gear and all like, it was probably the time we had the most things um, with us on our, on our kind of, in our car. And we were in the city of Barcelona. So anyone that's been to Barcelona is probably already seeing how many mistakes we're making right now. Um, but yeah, before anyone's robbed, I guess you're, you're, you're a rookie. So um, we stopped off at the Barcelona Olympic Stadium and we were going to do a session on the warm-up track. And uh, but first we went in, went in to check if it was available. And these two gardeners, uh, they were, like, distracting us, um, we think, because um, there was no reason for them to come up and talk to us at all. And they were like, yeah, I know, very quickly stopped talking to us at some random point as well. So we walked back out. We've probably only gone for four or five minutes, and um, our car was completely smashed up. Um, the seals were, like, ripped off the car. Uh, yeah, there's not much window left anywhere. So, yeah, all our bags were stolen. Um, the goggles, racing kit, uh, wallets, phones, um, spikes, um, pretty much any, everything you need, really, other than your passport. Our passports were back at that place. But, yeah, um, so that was one week out from World Champs to the day, um, which is, yeah. It's funny because at the time it felt pretty... um shattering pretty like uh you know it had the, like it had the potential to kind of influence the championships um because it was obviously pretty stressful and um but in hindsight actually probably was one of the reasons that helped me run so well in dubai because it it really uh it really simplifies things for you and it definitely gives you a bit of, a bit of perspective like you know we were you know one of the first things down said when um a few of us were like yeah freaking out was well at least none of us is dead we're all here and it's like that's so true it's such a small thing you, you know we had insurance everything got replaced it was not even that big of a deal at the, in the end of it um so yeah and i think that we after that was yeah made it nearly made everything more relaxing once we kind of made sure once we realized everything was going to be okay just because it's like uh well, yeah, like if that's the worst thing that happens on the trip, that's pretty good. And um, yeah, I know, won, won two world titles, so that was pretty uh, pretty good response, I reckon. Oh, mate, it doesn't get any better. Uh, yeah, <laughs> incredible meet, and obviously that little scare freed up some perspective and let you do your best. Um, yeah. Is this why you made the signature goggles move on the start line at that championships, mate? Yeah, that's the thing. So I've run most of the races in my whole entire life from bloody like primary school cross countries in the goggles. And uh, 
I'm standing on the sideline of uh, the, the first ever world chance where I've probably got a good chance of winning. And I don't have my goggles because they've been stolen. So, um, yeah, I thought I might chuck up the, uh, the goggles sign uh, with the hands. Um, yeah, couldn't think of anything else. So, yeah, I think it looked pretty cool. Oh, mate, it's a great signature move. I loved it. I loved it. So, so you did go into that championships as the favourite and the world record holder. So how did that sit with you compared to being the young upstart in previous years? Did it change your mindset or your strategy? Yeah, I think like, I think I was at the point, yeah, whether I was favourite or not, um, I was still going there to win a gold medal. Um, so I think my attitude would have been the same either way. One of the things with Paralympic sport is that you can't guarantee that someone isn't going to just come out of the woodwork and rock up and take your spot. Um, you know, Dion Kenzie was a world champ and, and um, a guy from Canada just kind of came out of nowhere. And um, now he's the world champ and, you know, they, he just kind of started running. So I always would go into a championship and so I'll still be definitely going into Tokyo because with, with, the, with the thought that, you know what, I am the world record holder and I'm the world champion. So I won't medal. But I don't, like, there's not enough kind of transparency of results coming out of Africa. I have no idea how quick those guys are running. They might have improved a heap. Um, Ethiopia and Kenya usually send a few guys that I've never raced against before. Um, when, when it comes to the Paralympic Games, I know Ethiopia sent a guy to Rio and they haven't even come as a team yet, I think. Uh, since then so it's kind of like that guy was pretty bloody good so it's like I don't know if they send another athlete but they could be better than me um, Russia was competing for the first time since 15 2019 um, and they had three guys that had really fast 800 meter PBs um, so I didn't really know how quick they could go over 1500 so it's it's just basically not taking it for granted that that you know that you're the best on the start line because um, you can't in Paralympic sport. You can't really in Olympic sport, but you've probably got more of a chance of knowing. Um, like Usain Bolt probably knows that he's going to win the race before the race goes. Like he's won all of the, the lead up races. He knows all the competitors in his race. Whereas like for someone in Paralympic sport, they might not have a clue at all they might be standing on the start line next to three guys they've never seen in their whole careers. So um, it's definitely different, but it's, um, I don't mind the pressure of, of being labelled as a favourite. Yeah, mate, that's great. And, and that's the other thing you control is your own performance there. So That's right, yeah. And let them do what they got to do. Um, yeah. We'll, we'll move into current year, which for everyone has been a bit of a pain in the ass, really. But for, <laughs> for you, potentially more so. So I, I want to talk about something positive first in 2020. So you, you ran in 29.30 on the track. So an unofficial <laughs> World 10K record there. Yeah. Was this just a training session, mate? Um, it was basically, yeah, a training session or it was just like a super unofficial time trial. It was, um, I was on the way, so this is in June. So um, Melbourne was actually really going all right at this stage. Um, there was no restrictions or anything like that. And um, we, I was on the way to camping and a couple of guys from Bendigo said they were 
going to do 25 laps of the track and kind of swap the lead with each other and try and run a quick time. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'll jump in, jump into that and give it a crack. And I've never done a 10K on the track. So, I don't know. It was kind of just an opportunity to race, I guess, in a way, um, although it didn't count to anything. It wasn't official. Um, but actually race, which we hadn't done for a couple of months already at that stage. So, yeah, got in and I um, ran 240, I think, or 239 for the last K and ran 29.30, which then I looked up because I'm not a 10K guy, so I didn't actually quite know the exact time for the world record. Um, and, yeah, so I, I beat beat that up like in an unofficial time trial at the Bendigo track, which is pretty, uh, pretty cool. Um, so... Yeah, I'm doing a 10K on the roads on Sunday in Launceston. So it would be cool if I can go a bit quicker than that uh, unofficial time. Um, yeah, it was weird. It was a weird race. I'm happy I did it in hindsight, though, when uh, Victoria got uh, worse, obviously, and wasn't sure if we were going to race for the rest of the year. It was good to just have like a little fun training hit out with a couple of guys. <laughs> I love how you call it twenty nine thirty a little fun training hit out. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it was tough. It was definitely hard. I actually threw up with five hundred to go on the track next next to me. So I'm not, when I say that, it was definitely still tough. Oh mate, uh, a, a spew session. Jordan Anderson would be proud. Um, <laughs> So, mate, you've also recently become the first Australian Paralympic runner to sign a deal with Nike. How, how did that come about, mate? And congratulations. Yeah, no, thank you. Yeah, Nike's been super uh, awesome with me yeah, the last 12 months. It took a while to get it, it done. Um, but, yeah, we did in the end. And, and basically what it shows, I think, and especially with the nature of it, is that, Nike, you know, they're they're keen to start taking Paralympic sport seriously, not just, um, you know, for its uh, stories and stuff like that, but but for its athletes and for for the fact that, you know, Paralympic sport is elite. Um, uh, Its athletes are elite. It is an elite sporting endeavour. It's an elite career. Um, So, it's you know, it's professional. And professional, you know, having a sponsor is... I guess a part of that and, and being paid to run is, is a part of that. So um, I'm a, you know, I'm well-funded by athletics Australia because in the medal winning or, you know, by the Australian sports commission through medal winning um, funding. Um, so there's, I basically, one of my main things was I'm not going to sign um, for some tokenistic uh, charity deal. So, and um, you know, I said that and I don't think, that was ever their intention because um, they came back with a, you know, a deal and an offer that was super, um, I guess, respectful of the Paralympics and completely acknowledged, um, you know, that, you know, I was a double world champion and I'm trying to win the Paralympic games gold medal um, that um, the, the para, the, the, the running Australia was super interested in, in power distance running. So um, Nike have absolutely jumped on board and, um, it's going to be exciting, especially when the world hopefully opens up um, from, and, and moves on from COVID um, one day. That Yeah, when, when that all happens, then I'm excited to see where the partnership can go. And, um, 
hopefully I can run some fast times in the in the Nike kit. Nice, mate. It looks pretty sharp too. Um, just yeah. just quickly on the on the Nike shoes, I guess. So the the cushioning of something like the Alpha Fly, how does that work for you? I imagine your feel of the ground is is more important again. Do, do you appreciate the cushioning or do you like something a bit closer to the ground? Yeah, no, exactly. Like what, what you're saying is, is, yeah, really a good point because for me, definitely in training, uh, when I'm jogging around especially, uh, not too cushioned. I do like to feel the ground. Um, on, that's why, like, if it's a road race and I can trust that the road's smooth, the cushioning from a performance um, perspective is definitely ideal. Um, but it also does take away one of the things that I do like, which is to feel the ground. Um, so it's kind of like a balancing act. Um, and I think in racing situations, uh, the cushioning definitely wins out as being a positive. Um, but in training, um, definitely there are moments when, yeah, like, some of the flats that we use in training, like, yeah, more likely to run rankle uh, in those ones. Um, and yeah, so I know, like, I definitely think it's worth it for the racing just because of how beneficial it, I believe it is. Um, but it has definitely changed the way I would navigate or kind of feel my way through a race. That's for sure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's really interesting, mate. Um, okay, so quickly take you back to being 13 years old again. So we've written a bucket list on the wall. There are six items on that bucket list. Mate, yeah. you're, tw you're 21 and you've already ticked four of them. So uh, what's left on that list, mate? Yep, so, yeah, the, this is someone wife put next to me. Yeah, the other two are um, to win the Paralympic Games, win a gold medal there. Um, so hopefully I can at least have the chance to kick it off you know and then after that I'm, I'm looking at doing the marathon and, and running quick over the the classic distance so um 2024 is going to be interesting to see what events i do um considering looking at doing a triple a 15.5 marathon um but mainly concentrating on the track and then just seeing how i can go in the marathon which um for people who've done a marathon they're probably thinking to me right now that that's stupid as anything, but, uh, um, but, uh, yeah, like, like, yeah, pretty much the goals at the moment. Um, definitely everything. It's hard to think past Tokyo at this stage though. Um, just want to, uh, really just want to tick that box. Uh, it's been something, I guess I've been obsessed about since Rio, since I left the stadium, I think, um, I remember saying to myself, yeah, you know, I want to come back here. To, to a stadium like this to win a gold medal. So really want to get that one done. Really just want to tick that box. And I think uh, uh, it feels like I'll be able to relax a bit after it. Oh, nice, mate. Well, you're certainly putting everything in place to, to tick that box, that's for sure. The, the marathon, you know, see what happens over the next few years. Yeah. <laughs> mate, I, I, I want to chat about some practicalities of blinky racing, I guess. So yep. Mate, the, these races look like a seriously bumpy affair at times. So what's your strategy to deal with a pack of elbows? Do you concentrate yeah. hard, hard on your stability in training to combat that bump and grind? Yeah, I, I guess um, 
I'm always like nearly falling over. I seem to seem I seem to be able to catch myself pretty well. So like on a run, I'll stub my toe, roll my ankle, slip. But I rarely will I actually fall. Um, I actually seem to be able to react quickly or have good reflexes or proprioception. I guess where I can move my leg and land pretty well. Um, and maybe that's, I think, I don't know if I'm just naturally good at that or it's something that has just developed through having a vision impairment. Um, not really sure. But in a race, especially uh, Rio, for instance, that was incredibly rough. And I think um, the Channel 7 commentator actually was interviewing me after the race and, and said that because uh, I did nearly fall in that race. And I, I think I said to him, I was like, well, that's what happens when you put a group of uh, blinkies onto a track and tell them to run as quick as they can. It's going to be pretty rough when they can't see, uh, when we all can't see each other. So, um, <laughs> yeah, which I think they like that. But it's basically, you know, 1500s are rough as they are anyway. Um, and then, yeah, as I said, you add some blinkies in it, it gets rougher. Um, so I think I definitely have a, a skill where I can handle that pretty well um, and stabilize myself pretty well. You'll see, people will see in some races, like my head will go down to the ground a lot more because I'm trying to look at people's feet or I'm trying to see the ground. I'm a bit more forward. I'm already a naturally forward leaning runner, but I can go even further. Or I'll run with my arms quite wide, um, which I don't even notice at the time. But I think that's just to help stabilize me or to react um, quickly to something. Like I'm just like they're out wide, just ready for it. Uh, so yeah, it's more subconscious. Um, I think a lot of the things that help get me through those races. Yeah, I, I imagine your proprioception would be yeah in, impressive in terms of a, an athlete and. Yeah, getting those elbows out's got to help, surely. <laughs> yeah, I've got pretty pointy elbows. Like when I'm running with Tim, um, you know, because we've run so many thousands of Ks together, he, um, you know, if I'm going to run into something, he'll hardly even say anything now. He'll just bloody like grab me or push me out of the way. Um, and yeah, we run pretty close and my elbows are always naturally a little bit out. So I think I give him a few corkies in the arm sometimes when we're just running along. <laughs> yeah. Uh, mate, have you ever been uh, caught tucking in behind someone like when a move pulls away off the front that you could potentially have gone with because you haven't seen that move happen? Um, in one of my last 5Ks that I've done by myself uh, was the B race at New South Wales 5K. And I actually crossed the line thinking I'd won. <laughs> and someone had gone out in front of me, and which I found out a bit later had won the race and I didn't notice that not yeah it's hard to know whether I could have gone with it like I'm not I'm still not really sure when that person would have even gone off the front but yeah um one of the things with guides is actually that it's meaning that I can just concentrate on running and I don't have to always be trying to see other people in the race which is already hard so that would just add to my fatigue um so Basically, they're the ones that will look for those moves for me and, and kind of tell me when they happen so I can react to them. Um, and that's why if you watch my 1500 in Dubai, I uh, sit right behind the leader of the race from the gun, basically. Um, yeah. So I know, I know I, in that race, I knew exactly what position I was coming the whole way. Whereas there are a lot of other races where I wouldn't have a clue. 
Yeah, and, and you certainly came home damn, damn strong in that last 400, mate. Um, yeah, yeah. I think I was lucky it wasn't 50 metres longer, though. That Russian guy was catching me. <laughs> he's a big dude, too. Big dude. Yeah, he, he was massive. <laughs> Mate, we talk about that, that guide running, and you've explained, I guess, a bit of the guide's role there. Um, can you explain to our listeners how the, the tethering works, mate? Yeah, so the tether is 30 centimetres for the track. It's got two loops at either end, and... Honestly, that takes up a lot of the 30 centimetres. So the actual gap, once you're holding it, is probably closer to 15 centimetres, which, I don't know. I think whenever I show someone in person, they always go, oh, that's way shorter than it sounds. Um, and it, So, yeah, you have to be in sync. Um, our arms have to go up and down at the same time and our inside legs have to hit the ground at the same time. Um, so the tether isn't necessarily something that I need um, in a race like that. Um, it is actually a good communication tool because you can tug on it and stuff like that. Um, but mainly what I need from the guide is the verbal communication. So um, yeah, but tethering is something I have to practice because it's obviously um, a prerequisite for, for having a guide. So um, yeah, we practice in training. We practice the changeover. So I use two guys and they change over at the halfway mark. And one of the guides has to be holding the rope at all times. So, um, which is, yeah, pretty hectic because we're running sub three minute per K pace. And at, for a split second, all three of us are holding this tiny tether. So, yeah, we aced it in the race, but two days before, I think it was, we were trying to do some practices and um, we were just like failing every time, I think just out of nerves. So uh, we, we nailed it in the race, but it is, it's a skill. Like, it's hard to do. Um, hey, that's, a, that's an incredible changeover. And, and, and I imagine this is something you get asked a lot, but there, there can't be too many people that can actually keep up with you to be your guide. Yeah, it's, um, it gets tough. Like, even with two, um, obviously, they don't have to be as quick over the whole distance. They only have to do half. But once, yeah, once I'm trying to find pretty elite athletes themselves the other thing to take into account is that they have their own careers and their own ambitions and that's more than fair um but absolutely and completely so uh i actually have probably a pool of five or six guides yeah and i have the two main ones which is phil and tim but i have these like group of backups that i could call upon if necessary um and yeah, and I'm always honestly looking to build upon that. So um, if anyone's interested and they think they're good enough, um, hit me up because the other thing as well, there's, there's a few athletes that are keen and we'll try, we'll try the tethering and stuff. And, you know, you don't have to have the exact same technique as me or, or, or stride length because like someone like Matt Clark was one of my first guys. He was able to actually alter his stride to fit mine so some people can do it but other people like they're really stuck in their own rhythm which is um, also totally fine but that, that, that does mean it's going to be difficult to be a guide because being in sync is like quite necessary it's it saves a lot of energy it's more efficient of course. so yeah that, that that i found that interesting so the pool of guides is obviously slim just purely because there's not a heap of runners that can do it but then within that pool there's only a slim amount of people that are actually suited to guiding me yeah 
Yeah, and and, and how important how important a body dimension is Tim as similar yeah. to the build? Yeah, Tim is like pretty much the same height, and our stride length is pretty much the same, and our arm carry is pretty much the same. So he's like definitely quite good at it. But then, like I always thought, maybe if they were a bit too tall, um, it would be hard. Felix quite a bit taller than me. And it did take us a while to get used to it, but um, now we're like as smooth as anything. We're really good. And Matt Clark, uh, he's heaps taller than me, but he's probably one of the better guides I've ever had just purely from the ability to adjust to me, which, because obviously he's like heaps taller, heaps longer stride length. So um, yeah, body dimensions is probably a thing. Like it makes it a lot easier for a person to do it when they're the same height. Um, but it doesn't make it impossible for someone taller to be able to do it. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. Have you ever had a situation where your guide is having a bit of a crap day and is actually slowing you down or getting a bit sloppy with their form and making things difficult for you? Not yet. It's definitely possible. Um, in fact, it didn't slow me down at all. But I actually didn't realise, but Tim in Dubai had a torn calf. Um, and I hadn't really, uh, hadn't really been notified, I guess, because there's nothing anyone could do and it would probably stress me out if I knew. So he got through it totally fine. Uh, he's got a pretty high pain tolerance, but, uh, yeah, like that, I guess that could go awry. Um, if someone pulled something in a race and um, there's not much I can do about that. I actually have to keep running with the guide. Um, and uh, yeah, so. It would probably ruin the race, um, so no pressure. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, it still hasn't happened to this day. I guess that's the closest it's been. Mm. And, look, do you find um, when you do have someone next to you, can you conserve energy? Are you able to switch that brain off a little bit more? Uh, yeah, 100%. Like, once we got the guiding technique down pat um, and made sure that the tether wasn't actually using up energy as well once we realized we could do that super flowy and i and i can definitely switch my brain off a lot better when i'm with tim and philo just because i trust them to a level that's quite superior to anyone else right really for running um i can i'm i'm, I'm very nearly confident enough that i could close my eyes and keep running like wow that's how it feels um, some, some of those races with Tim and Phil. So it definitely saves energy and I'm not stressed. Um, like even if I'm sitting second and I'm like, yeah, like I know what position I'm coming in, you know, I'm pretty confident I'm in control of being aware of the situation. If I didn't have guides, I'd actually still be stressed about that because I'm like, what happens if I've missed something? What happens if, you know, I don't know how many laps are to go. I don't know how quick we're going. I can't see the clock. Or I don't know which athletes in front of me or which army or how far. I can't look over my shoulder and see. So having a guide is like so much more relaxing way to run. Yeah, <laughs> mate. Know, amazing. Yeah. Amazing. It looks good. I guess the um, conversely, when you're doing your 1500 meters without the guide, because you're locking into your senses so heavily, do you think that allows you to dissociate a bit from the pain in your legs and lungs potentially? Yeah, I've actually thought that because it's the same with, it's like adrenaline, like adrenaline, you know, you watch an athlete break a world record after 
you know, in a 5K, in a Diamond League or something like that, and, and they'll be, like, jumping around, like, and haven't even gone for a run. And I've never, I've always looked at that and go, that looks so weird. Like, how are you doing that? I'm cooked after a race. But I know World Champs when I won the 15 and the 5, I was so pumped. Like, the adrenaline just, like, shoots through your body. Like, you don't feel it as much as you would in a local interclub. Um, and it's funny, once the adrenaline goes away, I spew, like, big time. Like, I filled up an entire bag um, after the 5K. And the 1500, I was being interviewed when the adrenaline kind of rushed away. I was being interviewed by these Japanese media and I knew they threw up all over them. I just made it to a bin. So, when I'm, I'm, I'm using this as a comparison because adrenaline, I reckon, masks the pain because you're because you're so switched into the moment because it's such a big moment in your life, I guess. You're so hyper-focused on everything. And I think it helps. And I think it's the same for me some, sometimes when I'm really in tune with my senses, which isn't all the time. Sometimes I can be tired or not up and about as much and I haven't done the preparation. But when I'm really in the moment, um, yeah, perhaps it does. Like, I'm not sure... I'm not sure if it's that or if it's the adrenaline, but uh, definitely in the bigger races, lactic acid isn't, is a different kind of pain or, you you know, you definitely feel it afterwards, but during it, it feels like sometimes it's, it's not quite there as intensely. Mm. It's really interesting. And uh, how much, um, I guess, does that fatigue you're talking about or general lifestyle factors play into your day to day vision? Does it, does it fluctuate with those, lifestyle factors yeah definitely like if i'm doing some studies um you know i'll be heaps more fatigued i was coming home from school in year 12 like going straight to sleep before training just to rest the eyes um i also find like training in the morning is probably better for me because i'm like i've woken up and pretty rested um so yeah there's definitely a few factors um obviously like different lightings and stuff like that um Purely, I think one of the main things is depend is I'll, I'll run much better off heaps of rest just because um, I think my vision's better. I think that's like a key factor, mm. definitely. So yeah. I can control that in daily life, like listening to an audio book over watching Netflix. Yeah. You know, that, that will help me. Mate, it makes sense. Just not using those muscles to the same extent or, you know, yeah. using that brain power either. So, yeah. Yeah. I've got a couple of a uh, couple of listener questions. Um, this one's coming from Wolfman, my my co-host. So my pa- my favourite Paralympian of all time is French athlete Jean Baptiste Allais. I think he's just trying to stitch me up with the pronunciation there. Um, <laughs> is, is there one particular para athlete that you look up to above others? Um, yeah, there's a few. Like it's pretty hard to look past um, in Australia someone like Kurt Fernley. Yeah. Um, he's obviously an absolute warrior, great human being. Um, I think one of the things I really like about Kurt is how passionate he is. Um, obviously his courage, determination, you know, his will to, to fight for the win. Like they're all really renowned qualities of him and, and, um, also stuff I take from him, but he's just like super passionate about whatever he's doing on or on or off the track or the road so yeah he's definitely someone i look up to whenever i get the chance to have a quick chat to him it's um you know always really cool 
someone in my own team, um, I think someone like a Maddie De Rosario, who's also uh, a wheelchair long distance racer. She, she's like, um, has a lot of similar traits in that she's like her will to win and her competitive drive and stuff like that is super cool. And, uh, and she's also really about the stuff that she does off the track too. I think in the vision impaired running world, um, from the UK, Noel Thatcher, he's someone I kind of got in contact with over uh, Twitter, I think. And we were going to hopefully catch up in Tokyo. He's a six-time Paralympic champion and used to hold the 1500 world record um, back in the day. Um, I didn't, I didn't take it off him, but I now hold it. So it's pretty special when I get to chat to him about, you know, his days and, um, you know, he raced in Sydney 2000 and, he saw the Paralympic Games before Sydney 2000 when it wasn't as, you know, it wasn't as uh, global. It wasn't as big. It wasn't as celebrity status as it is, uh, as it was after Sydney 2000. So there's so many great Paralympic athletes and people, and you just come across so many incredible stories and meet so many incredible people. So to, to name one is pretty tough, but um, I think they're the first three that come to my mind. Mate, good list. Fantastic. Uh, very inspirational people. Uh, we've got uh, another listener question coming from Dave Colbert, who you probably know well. Um, do you think the on-field commentator could potentially assist you by slightly modifying the time and position you're sitting in at, uh, during the race? Yeah. Um, it's actually interesting that in some of my Victorian races, uh, the commentators being someone that I know, like, say someone like, uh, Tim Crosby. So he's, uh, I'm sure he's never said this, but I'm sure he said stuff on the loudspeaker that has been to help me. Um, uh, yeah. Like what position I'm coming in. So I actually do listen to the commentators. So I actually, it's very hard in the big races to hear them, uh, over the loudspeaker, but I do remember in Dubai hearing, the commentator say how close the Russian was to me with a hundred meters to go. Cause I couldn't quite hear him um, behind me. Um, but yeah, that, you know, obviously with a hundred to go, you're going to run as quick as you can anyway, but I d- definitely have tapped into trying to listen to the stadium or um, track commentators before. I think it's something that can be helpful. Definitely. Mate, it's perfect. Plays into the uh, the adrenaline piece we were chatting about before. Yeah. Mate, uh, we talked about tenacity earlier. Now I want to ask you about perspective. Um, do you think the extra challenges you've faced to be so successful make you appreciative of the outcome and the victory beer taste even sweeter? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Like, um, I think that's the same with everything in life, you know, a challenge. Any type of challenge will make something um, sweeter. I think uh, something like, you know, this pandemic, which has been tough on, you know, the whole world really, um, and and tough for for people for reasons that make sport look trivial. And sport is trivial compared to um, the ways people have had to kind of yeah get through this last year um but um that being said like for me personally like i can only speak to my own perspective and obviously i was disappointed with tokyo so 
to win or to be able to even compete in 2021 at Tokyo, um, we'll ma- because we've gone through this, we'll make it yeah, a sweeter thing and, and you know, a cooler thing to experience now. Yeah, mate. And I've got no doubt uh, at this point, it's looking positive and, and you look like you're in the form of your life, mate. So uh, good to see the big dog on top of the podium <laughs> and, and we'll certainly be following your journey over the next, yeah, not quite 12 months now, but yeah, it's quite nine months with, with great interest. Um, if, if our listeners want to follow, follow that process, where, where can they best find you, Jared? Yeah, so I think the best places are probably Instagram. Uh, Instagram probably for following the journey. Um, I'm on Twitter as well. And then to follow the training, um, I'm on Strava as well. So the handles are all the same, just my name, no spaces, which is um, Jared spelled J-A-R-Y-D. Okay. So, yeah, I think that's the best place. No, that's perfect. I'm sure... Uh... I'm sure there'll be plenty of interested humans out there checking you out. Um, I just want to quickly say a, a, a quick day to our friend from Fractal Performance Headwear, Matt Nuita. Um, also uh, immaculate degeneration um, uh, athlete um, and he's doing some amazing stuff with that brand. So just quickly quickly say good day to Matt. Um, but thank you so much for coming on the show. Jared has been some incredible stories and uh yeah uh, we we wish you all the best in the next period of training and and we'll see you on that top step yeah no perfect and and thanks for having me i really enjoyed the chat no worries thanks so much jared see you soon (laughs) 